Hi, I'm Eric Connor, senior instructor at New York Film Academy. And I'm Ariel Seagard, acting alum. And in this episode, we bring you the director who flung a cow through the air in Twister. And trapped Keanu on a speeding bus, the one and only Jan de Bont. The lions did run over the camera and, and the actors were screaming and yelling, panic. And, and of course, one of the lions came back towards the hole in which I was hiding and bit me in my head. And I thought, this is the end of my life. Before directing, he was a cinematographer for dozens of amazing films, including Basic Instinct, Die Hard, and The Hunt for Red October. Which was executive produced by Jerry Sherlock. Really? Who is the founder of New York Film Academy. I didn't know that. Now you do. Well, that makes sense, because just like our filmmaking students, Mr. DeBont's own film education involved taking courses in all the different aspects of the industry. Well, let me tell you a little bit of uh, when I went to film school in Holland Film Academy, they did exactly the same thing. So, I, you know, you had to learn to be an actor, a cameraman, a editor, and record sound. Those four things. So I was completely not interested in, in acting, of course, but I had to. And, and that's probably one of the best things that happened to me because standing in front of the camera is so difficult and you're so dependent of what the person, the director, tells you, and you need so much information. So if you understand that, then later as a director, you kind of feel the need what, you know, what the actor has to go through, and all the problems you go through. I think it's extremely important. And, and I recently saw some of the little movies we did in Holland uh, in the late 60s, a long time ago. Um, and I remember seeing myself, there was in, in the film museum, and they had, it was a movie in which I had to be a model for underwear, and I didn't even remember that, and suddenly it wasn't a big screen, it was full. <laughs> it was a little embarrassing, I have to say, but I, I did learn so much of that. And, and I think it's like, you know, it, it is try to stand in front of a camera, try to say some lines, try to just walk in a room and walk out in a natural way. It's very hard, very, very hard. So you really have to understand what acting is all about. And of course, apart from the storyline and the character, etc., etc., it is really important that you deal with actors. And, and, and you can only do that if you, if you kind of force to do it a little bit. I mean, stand in front of a camera. It's really important. Even you oh, make your own little movie and try to portray something, you find out how difficult it is. Mr. DeBont went on to a successful career in Europe as a director of photography. But in order to make the true blockbuster films, he had to move to America. I started making movies when I was 14 years old. I made a little wedding film for friends and family. I had a small 8mm camera. And from there I went up and I went to high school and I started a film club in high school. But what I really wanted after you know working in Holland for a long time, I worked like did a lot of movies in Europe and Germany, is I wanted to go to Hollywood. I really felt like I could have kept working in Holland for a long time in Germany and Belgium and England, but I would never gotten to those movies, the bigger movies that I really wanted to do. You know, I, one of my favorite movies was Bridge on the River Kwai. I, I want to do one time a movie like that, something like really with spectacular events in it. And so I knew I had to do it one time. It's just like the hardest part is when do you make the decision in your life? Because when you move from Europe, where, wherever you come from, it doesn't really matter. You basically have to start all over again. You might as well forget that you've done all those movies because people forget very quickly here. So they know, you, they've seen maybe some of your movies for, 
for a couple of months and then they're waiting for what you're going to do here. So it's very important that you make the choice, whatever you do first in the United States, make a right choice. Don't fall into a trap of doing something that, that is a bad movie or is really nobody's going to see because you, then you get very quickly into the wrong, it's a wrong entrance into this movie business. Try to find something that has a little bit more you know, value more class, a little, even if it's, but, but don't be afraid to take a small job. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a big job right away. But really, do not make a wrong choice because it's, it's like I've seen many other people come from your, they always ask advice and they always want to go right into the big movies. Well, that's not going to happen. You know, it just, it's, it's rarely happens. So they, they really want you to prove that you, first of all, want to be here, number one, and secondly, that you really have talent. But what does help is when you make your own little movies. It's, I would recommend to anybody and, and is make your own little movies and, and make showcases for yourself. And really, it's so important because that, that, that they trust. They trust that much more than, than this movie, the stuff you did in, in, in any other country. So that's, that's one of the most important lessons I, I can give you. One of Mr. Debon's first films in the US almost killed him, literally. It's the cult flick Roar, which was directed by Noel Marshall and starred his wife, Tippi Hedren, daughter, Melanie Griffith, and several all-too-close, all-too-real lions. It's been considered the most dangerous film in history. No animals were harmed, but the 70 crew members that weren't so lucky, it got bad. The very first movie I did in L.A. It was a movie called Roar. It was, it was like 20 lions and tigers and elephants, God knows how many animals. It was with Tippi Hadron and Melanie Griffiths, and they said it will take about five months. It's a five months. I had five weeks, I expected it to be. And of course, that was like a, a movie that became like a, the disaster movie of all times, meaning that after eight months, the set burned down and animals escaped, so a lot of them escaped, so they had to be, you know, the whole crew was helping to catch the elder lions and tigers, um, <laughs> which was not fun, let me tell you that. It's really scary, especially with tigers. You see the eyes light up a little bit, you have to get out of there as soon as you can. And then the last thing happened to me in the same movie, and that was my welcome to Los Angeles, is that we did a scene, um, there's a big lake in the set, uh, Tippi Hadron and Melanie Griffiths were on a boat. They were chased by the lions and tigers on the shore. And I was filming several cameras. I had a scene, dug a hole in the ground, and the lions would be coming over the camera, and then I would pan to the actors in the, on the boat, right next door, under the rowboat. Of course, everything went well. I mean, to a degree it went well. The, ca they, the lions did run over the camera, and... and the actors were screaming and yelling, panic, and, and of course, one of the lions came back towards the hole in which I was hiding and bit me in my head. And I thought, this is the end of my life, you know, because I knew it was really dangerous because I couldn't see anything anymore because my skin was totally, I was scalped, basically. I was hanging in front of my face, and I knew it was very soft and bloody. My assistant completely fainted right away. And everybody else was listening to, to Melanie and Tibby screaming on the boat because there was a scene, there was the air. So, and then I started to scream, and, but nobody paid any attention to me for at least a minute. And I knew, I learned one thing is that you, when you ever work with lions and tigers, make yourself as big as possible, get up, put your hands up in the air as high as you can, and make as much sound as you can. But I think it's because I couldn't see anything. 
I just hoped that I didn't go towards the other lines. And finally, one of the trainers saw, you know, they were all watching. It was their fault that they were not watching me. And they got the animals away. But I was in the hospital for a really long time. I had 236 stitches in my hand. Wow. So that was my welcome to L.A. So it's not that easy. <laughs> Fortunately, Mr. DeBont's other projects as a cinematographer proved to be far less dangerous. Though he did have to brave the difficult terrain of union regulations. Another thing is that I was used to operate the camera. And as a, as a DP, that's a very European thing. And, and to me, it's extremely important because... I cannot possibly imagine if like a photographer asks somebody else, okay, you make the picture, I just tell you how to do it. So I, I feel like you have to connect with the actor. And I always, you know, like I said earlier, I always talk to the actors. So I get to know, I get to know a little bit how they, how they are, what they're thinking of, what they like to do, and trying to kind of indirectly a little co-direct a movie to some degree. Um, and that was like impossible. So I remember that, um, I think it was on maybe Hunt for Red October that the unions started suing me for this, that I could not do it anymore. I needed to hire operators, etc., etc. And that movie, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's very small sets and, and on moving platforms. There was just no space for an operator because you ha- there was just, I mean, it was just too small. So I did everything handheld. And so I could basically help to, to the directors himself to to find ways to visualize it. So the studios, really, they were really behind me. They were saying, listen, this is, they totally got it that I had to do it. And they basically helped pay for my lawyers at the time. And we won the lawsuit. I mean, but what happened, the result was that basically, um, as long as we hired operators, multiple operators, if, if they would be there and they would be doing other stuff, it would be okay. So even if, if I, let's say, if there only would be one camera, and I would only operate that one camera, then there still had to be another person there. If he sat on the chair all day long, that was fine too, as long as he got paid. And then, of course, the crews, like uh, the, the biggest difference is like, like one, the two more things, the, the size of the crews. In Holland and Europe, you have very small crews. And suddenly here, you have a crew of, before you know, there's 90 people. And in a bigger movie, it's very quickly, you know, like 150 or more. And that was like a big difference for me because I had to really learn how to deal with so many people. Much of Jan Debon's transition to American filmmaking involved learning how to manage hundreds of people when he was used to just dealing with dozens. There's a couple of movies that I've done over, you know, during my lifetime. And it's like one of them was Turkey's Delight. It's a movie that I always be very close to. It's a Dutch movie. I think it was nominated for Best Foreign Film Academy. It's based on a book from a Dutch writer, and I never realized how much I enjoyed filmmaking as on that movie. I mean, we had a film crew that was maybe a total of 12 people, 13 max, and we became like a unit that worked together day and night, including the actors. We were always together for, I think, seven weeks, and that kind of created such an incredible, you know, we always we all were on the same line. We all knew exactly what the stakes were. We all knew exactly what to do and what the story was. And everybody could talk to everybody. So it wasn't like the director has the only say, the final word. No, anybody had an idea, he could, you know, he could say it. And, and if it was any good, we would do it now. And that is, was such an amazing thing. And then those things that I learned in Holland, I never was able to achieve completely here because... 
everything is very separated here. Like you have so many professions and, and you know, if you go from a crew from 12 to a crew of 200, that's a big difference. And director is more of a manager of a managerial position in which you have to know everything about everybody and everything, everything about all the technical parts of filmmaking, you know, not only the directing part, but you have to know about sound, you have to know about custom, you have to know about cleaning, how long it takes to clean somebody's costume. It's ordinary, simple things, set design, lights, and it's an endless list, visual effects, special effects, what time of gasoline to use for bombs, what kind of, you know, it, it, is, it is amazing, the things you would never ever thought about having to learn about movie making. But as a director, you have to. I mean, at least for the type of movies I have been involved in. But coming back to that, uh, is there a movie I mean, there's a couple ones that I really like. I like uh, uh, Black Rain. It's one of my favorite mm -hmm. movies I still like very much. I do like Speed still because it was like also, that was the closest to whatever I had done in Holland, a small crew. Everybody worked for very little money and they only did it once. And that was for <laughs> I told them that after this next movie, everybody's going to get paid their real fee. And, and that was so great because everybody was, had also this feeling like, you know, this is one group of people making one movie together. It wasn't like one person at the top and then everybody just has to work their asses off. It was really a pretty great experience. After working with director John McTiernan on The Hunt for Red October, the two teamed up for the greatest Christmas movie ever, Die Hard. He's an easy guy to like. Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. And a hard man to kill. Bruce Willis, Die Hard. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? It's also a pretty awesome action flick. And setting up for a helicopter approach on Nakatomi Plaza proved to be harder than anything John McClane went through. Especially when the crew only had one night to pull it off. One night? One night. Prepping is incredibly important. For instance, like the scenes in Die Hard where they, uh, the big building, the helicopters fly around that building. We only had one night to film that sequence in. I think I used 28 cameras or so because there were scenes on the ground, in the streets, on the rooftop. It had to be lit completely. There are four city blocks that had to be lit and in Century City. And they only give us one permit to fly over at once. So that had to be extremely well prepared. You know, I had there's tons of lighting, but they were all kind of hidden. So that's number one, Where, how to light a set, how many generators. I think there were like 14 generators all hidden behind buildings. And the sets inside the building had to be lit. And on the rooftop, there was a big scene on the rooftop all at the same time. So you have to find ways, and that's a lot of prepping. It's like, how do you light a scene like that where you don't want to see the, the movie lights? And they use a lot of fluorescence. And so how can you keep everything out of frame? How can you not see the film camera, the film helicopter for all the other cameras on the ground? Mm. So that's a massive, massive preparation. And that's something that, first of all, you don't do this very often in Europe. And it is something that you really have to learn. And because it, the whole crew depends on you, on the DP mostly. They're not so much on the director because they quite often they sit in a, in the trailer because it's too complex for them because it's really it's it's too many too many cameras too many things and again you have to work with so many people and, and you have like at one point there was four sets of walkie-talkies talking to on top of the building around the building two blocks back and they all had to run at this at certain times at a different speeds and so it was it was like probably the the most complex thing I've ever done, but it was kind of fun to do it as well. Mr. DeBond's preparation extends to how he approaches each shot. 
to ensure that even the most seemingly mundane moments exhibits visual tension. What is very important to me is that there's intention in the picture, in the, in the image. If there's no tension in the picture, then to me, I'd do something wrong because I feel if there's no tension, there's nobody is, would be very interested in looking at it. And I always try to manipulate to a degree the image or the image quality to make people look at the screen. And when I started making my first movie, which was in the 60s, I started doing handheld almost exclusively. And I thought at least it felt like it was a little bit like a documentary feel to it, but it felt like audiences were looking, they were like a little bit more participating in the movie. It was somebody's point of view. You kind of were forced to really focus on, on what I wanted you to see. So that's really important thing you can learn, actually. You know, it's like what is important in, if you see an actor, do you put an actor in the middle of the frame? Do you see him on the left or right? Uh, do you see him from behind? Is his face lit up? Do, is he in the dark? I mean, there's a million, mi million different ways you can make it interesting. Are you moving away to the actor or, or uh, toward him? Or it is, it is kind of exciting to really, you know, find the right solution for every particular scene. But, you know, the, the, the one mistake, you, a lot of similar, is, is to make it just all similar. I hate it when, when movies have, a, and, and when it's too beautiful. I don't like when things are too beautiful because then I feel like, I'm distracted from the image. I lose a little bit, uh, the, not only the, the intensity, but I cannot look at the actors anymore. Because if there's beautiful skies and beautiful this and, and long lens shots, that to me is like completely distracting. I much rather have a camera right in a person's face. I mean, and I, I loved, as a cameraman, I remember, I loved to talk to the actors nonstop. I whisper, and they could see me, and they did. And the director never saw that because the director's behind me. And, and, and it was great. They loved it because quite often they don't know what to do. So I was trying to guide them. I, sometimes I push them away with a camera so that they have to move, so that there's a connection between, between, between the, the, the actor and the screen. This same attention to detail helped make the steamy thriller Basic Instinct look like it was a modern Hitchcock film. Well, that is if Hitchcock went after a really hard R rating. For that movie, I really had to come up with some ideas a little bit like, but a lot of those inspiration comes from Hitchcock movies now. I mean, there's a lot of similar locations even, like uh, on the West Coast, south of San Francisco. I, obviously, I'm a big fan. You know, I love his movies, and, and, and there's some of them were absolutely brilliant, and you can watch them over and over again. And I think this movie has a visual style that is partly modern and partly from the 50s, 60s. It's, I don't know how you get to do these ideas. I just, it's like you read the script, you read the script, and, and, and yeah, the, the film has to come together in your mind first. I mean, for, when I start doing a movie, you have to see the movie in your head before you start doing it. You cannot you know, figure out, oh, we'll do this, and then we'll figure out how, it doesn't work. You have to see the whole movie you had before. And if once you have that, then, it's, then the rest is relatively easy. After DPing dozens of films, Jan de Bont was ready to make the jump into directing. In other words, his career began to pick up speed. Huh? Huh? Really? There's a bomb on a bus. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is armed. If it drops below 50, it blows up. What do you do? What do you do? Now, he's the only solution. Keanu Reeves, Dennis Hopper, Sandra Bullock. 
speed. Get ready for rush hour. Pitching himself as a director turned out to be less work than expected, thanks to his extensive resume. But getting the studio to, to coin the phrase, board the bus, yes, was another story. With studios, it's just a matter of like, I, I already knew the studios now because I worked on a lot of bigger movies. It's, it just was the transition from DP to, to directing was a little hard, but um, they knew that I did, uh, for instance, I always did all the second unit. Now when there was big action scenes, I, I, I kind of, they always, the directors let me do it because it was much easier for them. And so the studios knew I did that. So they knew I could handle those big scenes. So basically I found this script speed that was uh, at, at Paramount and they, you know, and they thought they, oh, they, they hated the script because who in the hell ever wants to see a movie about a bus and it only goes 50 miles an hour, how boring. And, but I really could see the potential in that. And I went to it with that same script to Fox and to Peter Chernin, who was at that time president. And, and I told him my ideas and, and it took 45 minutes to convince him. And that's pure luck. I mean, that doesn't, normally it doesn't take a lot longer <laughs> and months and years sometimes. But that was, the, that was my first experience. And it was like, and of course, they were, you know, the, the result was extremely, you know, good for them because they made a fortune out of that move. Even though it was his first time directing, Mr. DeBont already knew one very important lesson in Hollywood. Make your boss happy. You know, the film business is like, you know people, but you don't see them all the time because everybody's always working, they're gone. So the first relationship is always the most important because that's what people remember. So whoever you deal with on your first project, you know, it's, it's going to be an important relationship because they will remember you, even if you don't work with them for 10, 20 years, they will remember you. And also they are the ones who will tell other people what they think of you. And that's a little bit how this business worked a little bit. They always call other people. What do you think about him? What do you think? Is he okay? Is he slow? Is he fast? Is he able to work with the studio? Is he, because studios, you're like, you know, the, every director wants to make his own movie. He wants to have total control. In Hollywood, you don't have total control. You have no control. I mean, in some way, you have all the control in the world, but, but only if you know that the, the, the final result has to be a movie that works. And it, you're absolutely out of your mind if you don't listen to other people who have some creative input that is, that is actually effective, that would make it a better movie. So you have to be very open to other people. I mean, unfortunately, I think the last decade or so, the studios have a little bit too much input. You know, like there's, they really are starting to direct out of the office a little bit. And they are giving you, you know, they see the daily, say, so uh, not good, do it again. And that is not good. I mean, it's okay if they give advice and say, no, no, but they cannot direct uh, a movie from a state. And that's a little bit a problem at the moment, I feel, with movie making is that there's too much similarity because it's like, it's office filmmaking, I'll call it a little bit. And they kind of, especially with younger directors, they take over control very quickly and they take it away from you. And in and, and post-production, when the editing is, and you think you made your movie, then they take over and they start re-editing your movie. And it happens so many times. The reason I say all this, it's much easier to cooperate with them a little bit and pretend at least that you're agreeing with them or you will try to do what they suggest. That's much better than to just fight them. You cannot fight them. It doesn't really work. Similar to how he preferred to be his own cameraman, Mr. DeBont wanted his actors to do their own stunts, even if that meant putting his own life on the line to get Keanu Reeves on board. I think 
uh, you know, because I worked with so many other directors as a DP, and I worked, you know, in, in many different types of movies, thank God. So I've been aware of what is kind of needed for actors, you know, how, and, and I always found the most difficult part is that actors are always the most insecure when it's a big scene, it's a big action scene, because they feel not familiar with it, they don't know what to do, they don't know how to run not, and not trip, they don't know what to say because there's never written dialogue for them. And that is so difficult. And they always think everything is dangerous. I mean, and that is, of course, the most important part of a director is to make them feel safe. And again, it's like it has not little to do with acting, but it has to do with like, if you don't feel safe, they cannot act. So quite often I try to do the stunt for them. I'm, I'm relatively clumsy. I'm not really good in jumping, but I felt if I can do it, they, they could do it too they should be able to do it. So there was many ways, like for instance on speed, like when Keanu jumps from the Jaguar to the bus. That looks like a difficult stunt, no? And we absolutely did not want to do it. He said, no, I'm not gonna do it, it's absolutely too dangerous. And I said, okay, I'll do it for you. I had no idea <laughs> what it was in for either. So in reality, actually, you know, it's more like a fear within your heart is that it's, because you see that the road passing by very fast and, you both got at least 50, 60 miles, depending, you know, like what the scene was. So in reality, the best thing is not to think about it and just step to the bus. You know? And when I did it the first time, I did step in and forgot to hold on, you know. So thank God he wasn't watching. So, <laughs> but because he was, he just looked away and I was so happy he didn't see that because he would have almost fallen out of the bus. And so I had to do it again, and this time I did it right. And, and then, of course, he, he said, okay, okay, well, if you really want it, I'll do it, but I really don't want to, but I'll do it. And then he finally did it, and it looks good. So it's basically, it's like you have to convince him it's, it's safe, because you really, you don't want to use stunt people. I can't stand the use of stunt doubles. I mean, because I want to really see the actors, you know, doing the, it, it, that to me, if I cannot see an actor's face in a stunt, is, is the whole stunt is meaningless. Because then you, anybody can do that and it's like, it becomes so prefab and it becomes like, there's no emotion. But the, the moment you see an actor's face in a scene like that, and you know, when, when Sandra drives the bus, he actually drives the bus. And once he hits some other cars, see, actually, it's another car. And you cannot act that, you know. It's really hard to really put it in your mind, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to react. It's impossible. But the reactors, mm. if they are at ease and if they feel really great and they feel safe, most importantly, then you get incredible reactions, you know. After Speed, his next film was the tornado-chasing action extravaganza, Twister. Or, as we call it back home in Oklahoma, the greatest, most accurate movie ever. Made about tornadoes. <laughs> it's coming! It's headed right for us! It's already here! Scientists have been studying tornadoes forever, but still nobody knows how a tornado works. Those people are all crazy! Do you know that? Jonas Miller, he's a night crawler. He's in it for the money, not the science. He's got a lot of high-tech gadgets, but he's got no instincts. Even with three times the budget he had on speed, Mr. Dubont still expected his actors, not their stunt doubles, to be in the thick of the action. 
you rehearse a lot and, and you can only rehearse to a certain degree because you cannot rehearse like running in the field with debris being thrown at you. The more intimate scenes you have to rehearse and because that had to be the same kind of feeling as, and tension than, than the rest of the sequences. So I wanted to make sure that it had this kind of a, a relatively intense a ruggedness to it but at the same time there was emotion to it. And with Helen it was relatively easy but a lot of the actors was a little harder because they like to do physical things and and you know like uh, it was a little difficult for me sometimes to get them to do the quiet sequences because they said no, I should have run it no no you're not going to run you just sit there for it. but it's not much different than any other movie it's just rehearsing talk about it listen to what they have to say very important and and really let them play it and and let them especially let them do it one time the way they like to do it and and, and see if there's anything that you like from it and, and then try to use it because it's really important that you listen to them and that you really uh, hear what they have to say because ultimately they have to play it, no? I mean, they cannot become just like robots and just running from left to right. This really was so important to me that they really understood what it all meant, you know? Like, I really wanted them to drive the cars. I didn't want to have, like, normally in, in Hollywood movies, you have a big, tall car, and the, and, and the actors sit in the car behind it, and they, they all fake drive. Here, the actors, they had to drive. And that makes it much more real, no? It's like, it's a little bit tricky sometimes. Like the helicopter shot when the, the camera starts really high up, and then we see the red truck, and then the camera comes closer, 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 till close up in the car. And that was dangerous, because these were the actors driving. And, and the helicopter was at one point like 20 feet away from the car. And, and he was one of the best pilots in the business, and, and, and I knew he could do it, and, and he totally guaranteed that it would be safe. But for the actors, they were, no matter how it explained it to them, how close it would be, they were scared shitless, because <laughs> if you see a helicopter the distance of half this room, it's pretty close, especially with the wind blowing. And, but, it's, uh, but, but they liked it, they were really troopers. And, and, and I think after a couple of weeks of shooting, everybody was so into, into the whole feeling of chasing and roughness. It was just pretty, some of them went sometimes chasing in a weekend in the state next door, which we totally told them not to do because we were afraid they would never come back. But, <laughs> but, but, it's, but at the same time, they got this feeling what it really meant to chase a tornado. Because it's, it's really, I couldn't recommend it. It's really cool. We at the Backlot are not responsible if any of you decide to chase a tornado for real. So don't blame us. But ironically, the filmmakers had to chase tornadoes themselves to get the necessary footage. Bad weather usually shuts a film down. In Twister, good weather caused them even more problems. The most difficult thing was, and I don't know if you noticed or not, but we were filming during, you know, the season where most tornadoes do happen. And of course, the, the year we were, were filming it in was a year that was an incredible soft summer and no tornadoes were visible in hundreds of miles. And not only that, the skies were always totally blue. And so I had to, oh my God, how can I possibly make a movie where the skies were always sunny, but there's no wind. And so we basically had to come up while shooting, how are we gonna solve this problem? And we designed a system with sky replacement that had to be affordable because we didn't have any more money because everybody thought the skies would always be dark in Oklahoma, which they aren't. And, and so we found a system with ILM that we could relatively easy, I meaning it would take us several days for every shot, 
to replace it. You know, we had a second unit team filming skies in all the states around it where the weather wasn't so good, like Nebraska, and try to replace the sky, use that sky, and put it in all the images we did in Oklahoma. These days, CGI has become so impressive and routine, we almost take it for granted. But in the mid-90s, using CG to create a natural-looking disaster was a new and incredibly complicated process. Well, first of all, I did go on a couple of, of those, those storm chase runs. Have you ever done that? It's fantastic. It's really, really cool. It's like, there's nothing more scary and exciting than chasing a tornado. In a car, especially if the car is a little slow, because then you have to really find ways out of it. But I really, I got so excited by that because it's like the force of nature is so amazing. And as I said, that's what I really wanted to get on the screen. It's like there's nothing that we can do that's even close to what nature can do. So I went to meet with so many of the storm chaser guys, saw all the footage, and and hired quite a few of those people because I thought, you know, they know where we have to go. Number one. Of course, and we didn't know that it was going to be like a sunny, sunny shoot. But they were guiding us, in, at least also in what the people would do in the cars. They, all the equipment was right, and we had, we had actually real Dopplers with us, and that would work. But there was nothing to see because there was no tornado in the neighborhood. But, but anything that those actors do is relevant to what a real storm chaser would do. So that took a long time um, to get the cars right because it's like we needed like a... Um, five sets of cars basically of each car because they always had to move left and right many cars got damaged and had to be re you know patched up repainted so the, the pre-production was extremely long but most importantly the visual effects in this movie this was a very beginning of visual effects a little bit and a lot of them had never been done before so the studio did not let us make the movie until we could prove that actually we could make, create a tornado on, on, on visual effects and so we had to develop, I mean, I was involved in the developing of the particle system that didn't exist. So another thing that a director sometimes has to do, but, but that was a kind of exciting because, you know, it's the particle system and we figured out had to have at least 12 million particles for it to work. And, and that means we need extremely powerful computers to deal with all that information at a time. So ILM and, uh, and all the, the supervisors, they had to rent supercomputers to be able to store it all and to put it together. I mean, the rendering of that shot in the film at the end, that the big tornado at the very end, that took two days to render, just one shot. And the whole post-production took very long, a uh, long time. Because it was like, uh, first of all, we were, they told us we cannot move the camera ever, you know, because otherwise we could not match it. And, and then when I, the first day I was shooting, I told the guy, no, no, we cannot do it. It has to be handheld. It has to be, I have to feel this rough quality to it. And they freaked out completely because they had never, the tracking of, of shots in those days was extremely difficult, very time consuming. So they were forced to design the system as a little easier. It still was very slow, but at least twice as fast as that. So, so the whole post-production was like probably twice as long as they had imagined it to be. And, and also the visual effects, special effects on camera, which was really fun. I mean, like blowing real ice cubes into actors' faces and straw and hay and debris. We had this, you know, like the sequence on the road. Now we had two gigantic 40-foot trucks. We had one camera truck in the middle, like six cameras, and then two big trucks with huge ice makers spitting out this ice and aiming it right over the top. It would fall on the actors. 
I mean, that was actually more fun than anything else, <laughs> because <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, Bill Paxton got one. I mean, we tried to make him as small as possible, but it was one big clunker in there that hit Bill Paxton in his head. I remember, and you can see that in the movie. He was bleeding like crazy, but he really. I said, stop, no, 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 keep going. And he, he loved that because it was really cool. It was like a really uh, fantastic thing for, for him, an experience. So nobody experienced like in the back of a pickup truck standing in a hill. It's pretty cool. So there's a lot of things we had to practice and endlessly rehearse. And sometimes it works and sometimes it don't. And you have to find other solutions. You know? Man, he really loves tornadoes. Seriously. And you might assume that Dion DeBond's work ethic and his boundary pushing, the tornado chasing, not to mention his extensive background as a cinematographer, would make him a really difficult director to DP for. But in fact, the opposite's true. Because he started as a DP, he knows what they go through better than anyone. People always ask me the question because they think, oh my God, he's going to be so critical. And in reality, because you have such a clear vision of what you like, what you want to see, you can, you can be extremely precise in telling to the DP what you're looking for. And most directors have no idea what they want, so they're kind of very vague and they hope that you give the right answer. But it was very precise in what I was looking for. And, then, uh, and of course, you look for people that you know a little bit, that you work, you know. And therefore, it was like relatively easy. So this is what I'd like to see. And you think you, you know, you could do that? You're, are you interested in it, most of all? You know what, there's one other thing that's really so important with, with as a DP director, is that, you know, I, they always ask me, you know, when I was shooting movies like on diet, whatever, Lethal Weapon, any of those movies, it's like, uh, how much longer? It's okay, uh, 10 minutes. And of course it's always 20, <laughs> or sometimes longer because the sets are sometimes so big and, doesn't work out whatever reason. In this case, when a DP tells me I need 10 minutes or 15 minutes, I can see he needs at least 15 minutes or 20. So I must be able to defend him against the producer, say, no, no, he really needs 20 minutes. It's okay, it's fine. So they like, most DPs really, that the ones I've worked with, really, I mean, they love it because they finally somebody who defends them, you know, so it's good. If you're gonna battle the elements when making a film, it's good to work for someone who has your back. So we want to thank Jan DeBont for talking with our students. And thanks to all of you for listening. That's Eric Connor. And she's Oklahoma's own Ariel Seagard. This episode was based on the Q&A moderated by Chris Devane. To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by Eric Connor. Hi. Edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden. And me. Executive produced by Toba Leiter, John Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. A special thanks to our events department, Saja Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next time. time.